This is episode 253 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Heart Failure Genius, Dr. Roger Fu. Hey, everybody. We are Daylon and Arun. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. The Stem Cell Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. If you enjoy the podcast, rate us and leave a review, please. We're always looking for feedback on how the podcast can be improved and for suggestions on guests. Today, we have Dr. Roger Fu from the National University of Singapore, literally on the other side of the globe from me. He's on the podcast to talk about his research on the molecular mechanisms that regulate cardiac biology and disease. We've also got our usual roundup, recent highlights in stem cell news. That's coming up in just a few moments. But first, we've got some exciting news, which you might have heard by now. The Stem Cell Podcast will once again be coming to New York City. Join us at the Alexandria Center for Life Science on October 26th for a live recording of the Stem Cell Podcast, where we'll be discussing Blue Rock Therapeutics Phase 1 clinical trial for a stem cell-derived investigational cell therapy for treating patients with Parkinson's disease. Hear from those involved in the clinical trial about the journey of bringing a cell therapy from the bench to the clinic and the challenges along the way. Register for the show at www.stemcellpodcast.com slash blue rock dash live dash show. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that conversation. I mean, literally talking to legends in the field about a legendary topic and a watershed moment in our field. But before we get to that discussion, which we're going to circle back, actually, uh, to Parkinson's disease therapies and your roundup story before we get there. I have a, a really exciting story, exciting to me, I think exciting to us. We've been talking about xenotransplantation on the show a bunch, right? Because it's been in the news um, with this, you know, this decedent studies, so-called, where uh, brain dead patients had these porcine kidneys xenotransplanted into them, and they, they maintain function, produce urine, amazing uh, uh, also that compassionate use uh, of xenograss in the case that we talked about for uh, the gentleman who had heart failure, no donor, had got a porcine heart um, that was engineered, of course, to make it immunocompatible and survived for a few days, ultimately succumbed. This is really like preliminary proof of concept stuff in human. And by no means are we actually putting these organs into phase one clinical trials in humans yet, right? Because we're not there yet. This is proof of concept, compassionate use, people who were brain dead, right? Um, what we want to get toward is people who are suffering kidney failure, heart failure, um, and can actually preserve long-term function. Uh, and with the kidneys, it's particularly, I don't want to say fraught, but it's more complicated, I guess, because if your heart's failing and there's no donor, that's it. But in kidney failure, you know, there's dialysis up to a point. Um, so there's alternative means. So I, I don't know that you have as much of a, a impetus for compassionate use in that case. Um, but nevertheless, I mean, what this story is about is moving toward this concept and the reality of actual xenotransplanted organs, which would be a, a transformative solution to the reality of organ failure. And I've said it, and I think everyone, we've talked about it a lot about maybe the most practical uh, application for addressing the really uh, the shortage there um, and that unmet need. And to date, there have been a, not a bunch, but a few genetically engineered porcine donors 
um, for this kind of preclinical work, uh, kidneys, that's we're talking about kidneys here, transplanted in, into old world monkeys, all right, to establish a, a preclinical model that you can test rigorously, you know, these are long experiments, really expensive, um, in order to get to the phase one in humans. Uh, but at, at the current state, uh, before this paper, presumably, the, the donors um, were often creating this commercial pig breed that's just big. The heart and kidney is just anatomically bigger uh, than what you find in human. Too large, some would argue. And there were some hacks where they tried to modulate IGF receptor activity and whatnot. But I don't think anything that's really practical, pragmatic maybe, but not practical. Um, there's better solutions. Also, uh, these donors, some of them were, were designed for old world monkeys, right? So they knocked out two of the glycans. Uh, I'm not going to name them. Complicated names. Look at the paper. Uh, but they left this other glycan. I'll name this one, NU5GC, right? Because in old world monkeys, that matches the expression. Of those. So they didn't need to do it, right? Um, but for humans who don't have any of those glycans, you got to knock that one out too, right? And and that has been done uh, also in new new world monkey models. But the to date, the the studies and transplants that have done the graft survival was was short, and not all of these human transgenes were expressed. And this is a key here: these human transgenes um, that are incorporated into the heart. It's not just about getting rid of all the Im non-immunocompatible glycans, right? Um, but it's also about uh, creating uh, human signals that will make the transplant more compatible in that context. You know, it's a real inflammatory environment when you're transplanting an organ. And not only that, finally, but there, there's also these uh, porcine endogenous retroviruses, right? Uh, sequences that present this zoonotic risk. You put cells and culture together and the, the little perbs, as they call them, uh, they creep into the human cells and incorporate in the genome, those little pervs. Uh, so we got to stop that. That's no good. So who knows what could happen? Unknown unknowns there we got to avoid. Um, so uh, the key is to do all three of those things. You got to knock out all the glycans. You got to uh, express some human transgenes to make it more compatible. And you got to get rid of all, all those pervs. Um, so that's that's how it went down. This is a study from eGenesis, right? I mean, this all presumably happened in-house at eGenesis. Senior authors here are Michelle Yu and Wenning Chin, who are uh, employees um, at eGenesis. eGenesis was founded by George Church and Luhan Yang. And this followed from a paper way back in 2015 in Science, where Luhan, first author with George Church Sr., they knocked out all the pervs using CRISPR, um, like in one wholesale shot in cell lines. All right. So in kidney epithelial cell lines here, they do 69 genomic edits. I know that sounds crazy, but I'll just lay it out for you quickly. To get rid of the three glycan synthesis genes, they had to hit eight alleles. So that's eight targets right there. They had a single transgene uh, construct that was like a bomb, had like six or seven human genes in there. Um, into the AAVS1 locus. Uh, and then here's where it got busy is the, the perv. To get rid of the, the, the pervs, they had to target 59 copies of these things to, to really sweep, have a sweeping wholesale reduction. All right, so 69 edits later, they established and then cloning. So they targeted these epithelial cells. They cloned them. It's a lot of tech. It's probably why it took eight years. Uh, they they cloned it, uh, made these cloned pigs, 
um, and then showed uh, in vitro that the, the kidney epithelial cells in these pigs, um, they modulated inflammation in a way that was indistinguishable from human endothelial cells. So that suggested there's going to be good immune compatibility. Uh, and then when they transplanted, so they tried all these different permutations, just the three uh, with just the glycans, then with the glycans with the human with transgene, and with the glycans and the human transgene and knocking out all the pers. They tried it all. The, the bottom line was when you knock out just the glycans, and this is key, when you knock out just the glycans, you get some survival, but it's not great. You know, I think the latest time point that they got those to survive out to was like seven, eight weeks or something. When you do the the three uh, glycans out and you uh, express those human transgenes, you get survival out to, I mean, some of these things died. Uh, these macaques um, died. Uh, let's be clear. But some of them survived out to, at this point, still ongoing, but two years plus. So um, I don't know. For Arun, this is to me a revelation because I think we were excited when they were doing, oh, it's proof of concept. They're making urine. This is two years in a model. They're saying, hey, now there's a rationale. We can go to preclinical. We got a nice preclinical model. This Yucatan mini pig. I should have mentioned. I mean, look at the PR on that Yucatan mini pigs as, as organ factories. Uh, the PR possibilities are endless, but really the therapeutic potential is more so. Uh, we were excited when it was proof of concept. I feel like forget about preclinical. I would not think it was crazy to to put some of these kidneys in humans. Uh, maybe I'm more risk tolerant. Uh, wh what do you think, Arun, about this study and everything? No, this is so exciting. I agree with you. I was wondering for a long time what happened to eGenesis because that paper from Luhan and, and George Church with the in vitro edits that happened. Yeah, that happened almost ten years ago. And here we are, you know, this is a really high profile nature paper demonstrating the the survival of these kidneys in in primates, right? So you're right. I think this validates the system as a as a useful preclinical model. And certainly there's ethical considerations here for using non-human primates for these kind of studies. But you know, I think the the application for xenotransplantation is is unlimited for alleviating the the organ shortage crisis, right? I remember one of the first research papers that I did in college as like a freshman at Duke was on the topic of xenotransplantation. And back then, it was still very much science fiction. There were a couple of case scenarios, you know, um, uh, compassionate use scenarios where, for example, there's this baby called Baby Faye, a human child who actually received a non-human primate heart, I think, in the 80s or 90s because of some congenital abnormality. And she didn't survive for very long. But that was just a an N of one, just a experimental situation. And here we're getting to the point where xenotransplantation of kidneys, hearts, uh, of immunocompatible kidneys, hearts, and other organs could become a reality across the board within the next five to ten years. So we're living in the future. This is, you know, amazing to see the evolution in this field. And you mentioned that the there's a compassionate use cardiac transplantation that happened a few years or, or a few months ago maybe about a year ago at the University of Maryland, there's actually another one that happened, a second one that happened within the last month or so. And this was an individual, and I actually just looked this up. This is a, like a 58-year-old Navy veteran and former, uh, actually a former vaccine researcher at the NIH, Lawrence Fawcett, who received the second um, uh, immunocompatible pig heart. 
And, uh, you know, he was able to sit up in a chair, breathe on his own. The new part, the, the new heart is pumping without help from supportive devices. So this field is just really starting to take off. Um, it is so cool to see this happen uh, in multiple organs. And eGenesis is one of many companies that's working in this area. You know, <laughs> I don't want to be pessimistic about the possibilities in this field too, but perhaps this is just a solution to, to all therapeutic options for, for cell replacement therapy, right? Excluding the brain, of course, you can't replace the pig brain, not yet. Um, but say in the place of iPSC-derived cardiomyocytes for, for cell therapy after a myocardial infarction, why not just say, just replace the entire heart and get a brand new pig heart, right? Sorry, Chuck Murray, if you're listening to this, this episode, but maybe that's the reality we're headed to in the next few years. Yeah, I mean, I was just thinking the same thing. I'll, I'll disagree with you on one point, which is that there's a few people I can think of that might actually uh, benefit from a, a pig brain. But um, <laughs> in all seriousness, I was just thinking the exact same thing, which is that sometimes in science, you know, and you, it's great if you can live to see it, that, you know, your whole life's work is made moot by uh, development that kind of leapfrogs uh, the tech that you were hoping towards. And I, I don't want to, you know, overstate it. There's a million applications of of pluripotent stem cell derived cells and modeling, et cetera, and everything and therapies as well as we're going to talk about with Blue Rock, um, particularly in the brain. There you go. But uh, yeah, you know, you wonder if the biggest problem facing cell therapy and bioengineering has just been solved. Yeah. We'll, we'll see what happens. And you're absolutely right. That's exactly what happens with technologies across the board. They leapfrog each other. We think about, remember, like, what, a long time ago, 15 years ago, which is not so long ago, we had this technology called zinc finger nuclease, right? And then we had tailins. Exactly. And then what happened after that? CRISPR, right? And who knows? If I'm tailings, I'm like, I didn't even have a minute. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Hey, and maybe CRISPR's time in the sun is, you know, getting eliminated as well because we have you know the base pair base editors and all these other prime editors technologies continue to evolve and i think that's to the benefit of patients who are ultimately the ones who are going to receive these therapies so it's really cool to see the evolution in xenotransplantation over the last couple of decades so talking about cell therapies um i have a couple of preclinical studies associated with early phase clinical trials that are in the area of, of, of neuroscience. So this one is a cell stem cell study. It's a preclinical quality, safety, and efficacy study of an human ESC cell therapy for Parkinson's. Okay. We're not talking about Blue Rock. We're talking about um, Agnetic Kirkaby, Nova Nordisk. We're talking about Mallon Parmar. There are multiple cell therapies out there that are being pursued for Parkinson's. And I think it's a great thing, you know, multiple avenues, multiple shots on goal to address this really devastating disease in Parkinson's. These folks are also taking a human embryonic stem cell based approach to generating these dopaminergic neurons. Um, just like what Blue Rock is doing, it's a different um, embryonic stem cell line. I, I forget the, the name of the line here, but I think Blue Rock is using H9. And then there's a Japanese team too, which is not talked about too much in this paper. They're using iPSC-derived uh, dopaminergic neurons. Perhaps there's a bias towards using iPSCs in Japan since, you know, Yamanaka and my colleagues, right? Sure. Um, but outside of that, you know, focusing on the results of this particular preclinical study, they're, they're showing all this really important data that's supporting the 
the first, uh, you know, one of the first inhuman stem cell derived Parkinson's disease phase one, two, a clinical trials, you know, along with showing the, the trial design too. So this product was of course manufactured under GMP, good manufacturing protocols and quality tested in vitro in vivo. They made sure very importantly that it could actually freeze thaw very effectively. You don't want to lose viability of the cells um, after thawing and before putting them actually in the, um, in the brain. I actually think that's a huge accomplishment in itself because talking to folks from the next door of my lab and Clive Spenson's lab, it's just hard in general to cryopreserve neurons. Um, and so being able to just reproducibly cryopreserve neurons and freeze thaw them, that's that's a great thing. So they did the the quality testing and then started doing the, the preclinical testing in the mouse model here showing that no adverse effects were actually observed upon testing of that this product in a um, in a 39-week uh, rat model. Apologies, not mouse. So it's a safety study for toxicity, tumorigenicity, biodistribution, all is kind of green across the board. Um, also confirming via histology and electrophysiology that the transplanted cells are fully functional in that preclinical rat model of Parkinson's disease. And then the, the most important thing is actually to show uh, comparable efficacy results between multiple GMP batches showing that it can be manufactured and that it's, it's effective. It actually is effective in alleviating the symptoms of Parkinson's disease in this preclinical model. So, um, and they wrap things up just by saying, hey, this is happening right now. Um, you know, this is a clinical trial that's underway that was initiated in 2022. So we'll wait and see what happens. Wow. Uh, I mean, the timing of all this stuff, I guess it's to be expected, but it's still pretty amazing. And uh, I don't know, I'd say Blue Rock's ahead, I guess. You know, we got some phase one results back. The results are really encouraging. We'll dig into that in a couple of weeks. But I would not sleep on this group here. You know, if you've heard of something called Ozempic or Wegovy, you may know that Novo Nordisk has surpassed LVMH as the most valuable company in Europe. All right. So, you know, when you got Louis V on the run, uh, I think maybe Blue Rock ought to be looking over their shoulder a little bit too. But in all seriousness, as you said, um, this is great for patients. This is great for scientists uh, at both companies, at both in both groups. Um, I, I'm willing to bet that Stefan is cheering them along because, you know, the, the more rigor and care and proof that's demonstrated in these studies, uh, the better it's going to go for all of us in terms of the reception and the efficacy. We want these first results to be really impressive. We want the, the hope and, and, and promise of stem cells to be realized in a real vivid, tangible visible way. Uh, and I think that the more the more groups that we have, uh, you know, more shots on goal, as you said, uh, the more likely we are to, to score. And at this point, you know, it seems inevitable. We're going to make this progress. And I think it's going to be really, really impressive. Arun. Yeah, I totally agree. I think the next five years are going to be so, so exciting for this area in Parkinson's disease research. And that's exactly what it's about. You know, certainly scientists are competitive, but when it comes to actually treating patients, we're all on the same team. We all want to see that positive clinical data and actually showing that this devastating disease has 
a treatment and potentially down the road a cure. And honestly, as a third party, I don't care who gets there first. I just want you know somebody to 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 succeed, and I want the patients to to ultimately you know be cured and be be happy, right? That's what it's all about. And in fact, in their discussion, they actually mention the other trials directly, so they're not shying away from saying, yeah. Blue Rock is doing their thing. The Japanese group is there doing their thing. So we'll wait and see what happens. Yeah. I mean, uh, fortunately for me, I don't have a personal connection to Parkinson's disease, but I mean, it's a major, massive unmet need, but a universal unmet need is treating aging. I mean, I'm suffering sorely from that, Arun. You look pretty good over there in that Zoom window, but <laughs> I mean, I'm looking at my own reflection here. I'm embarrassed um aging oh geez uh you know molecularly cellularly it's about senescence uh and a functional decline that's linked to that senescence right lazy cells just hanging out not proliferating not doing anything constructive um and all the associated molecular alterations tissue etc uh, and there's been a lot of uh, attention paid to like senolytics you know so-called senolytics which is to try and kill target these senescent cells. Um, so, and the results are encouraging in many different systems. I remember there was this a ATAC, a P Inc. or something. The ATAC was an acronym. They had fat attack, heart attack, they were attacking all these niches with this uh, senescent cell targeting mechanism. And, and it was uh, effective. They were able to restore function in a lot of these cells. Um, but ultimately, uh, you know, getting rid of the cells is one thing, but the, the reality is that. The, the what is at the root of uh, the pathology of aging is that these these cells lose function they lose their differentiation capacity um and uh pretty much give up right um there have been other studies which i think were a little bit more troubling in theory but no one was trying to apply them which was to take combine the yamanaka reprogramming with this aging right and so you could take short-term uh, expression forced expression of the Yamanaka factors, uh, OCT4, SOX2, KLF4, and CMYK, um, and it would rejuvenate senescent cells, improve tissue repair, and in mice, extend lifespan even. So that was proof, even though maybe it wasn't practical, it was proof that you can restore that youthful, quote-unquote, uh, molecular program um, and actually have some functional benefit from that. So what the group here uh, attended to do, which was a, a pretty far-ranging group, mostly at the Chinese Academy of Sciences, which is comprised of, these are all the uh, lead authors on this, Si Wang, uh, Ji Ren, Wei Qi, Zhang, uh, Ji Xu, uh, Guang He Lu, uh, all from Chinese Academy of Sciences. And of course, Juan Carlos Ispazua Belmonte. I always have trouble with that name, but I thought I did pretty well with those Chinese names, Arun. I thought I knocked them out. But of course, I stumbled on Juan Carlos. My apologies. He's from Altos Labs. Um, and the idea here was, can we recapitulate that Yamanaka effect uh, using a more of a silver bullet, something that's practical, it's not going to be so scary in terms of uh, teratoma, maybe, I don't know. Um, and what they used here was this CRISPR activation approach, this, uh, this like screening approach that uses a synergistic activation mediator, uh, so-called SAM, uh, in this massive gain of function screening. And this was used, you know, about 10 years ago now. A lot of groups came out, including George Church, you know, he just does it all. Um, a lot of the groups came out with these, these uh, way of 
turning on genes um, using various activation gene, uh, domains fused to CRISPR. And Fenjang created a whole library, pretty much pangenomics. So they used this screen, dumped it on cells. And this is the key. I thought they had a really clever model, which was they, they created this premature aging model where they took the human embryonic stem cells um, that were uh, that they targeted the WRN gene that's the uh, encodes the Werner syndrome protein. If you know about Werner syndrome, it's a mutation in a DNA DNA helicase that results in a kind of progeroid uh, phenotype, right? So they had these ES cells, they differentiated those into mesenchymal stem cells, and those mesenchymal stem cells exhibited this premature senescent phenotype characterized by increased beta-gal activity, right? So there's their screening platform. They have these disease cells where the phenotype is an increased beta-gal, really easy to score on. Cell proliferation or lack thereof, really easy to score on. They did this, not easy, I don't want to uh, simplify because they're doing this across, you know, pan-genomic screening. Ultimately, using this CRISPR activation screen, they settled on a number of targets, and I, I, we should emphasize that. They have a bunch of other arrows in the quiver to check out. Um, but what they settled on ultimately as the like the number one hit that outperformed the others was SOX5. And I, I like this story in part because a lot of times you hear like if they had said SOX2, I would have been like, OK, not surprising. But no, SOX5, never heard about it, looked into it, uh, not a lot about it. There's this um, neurodevelopmental disease called, what is it called? Uh, lamb Schaefer syndrome that is, involves a SOX5 mutation, but you won't find a lot about it other than that. And that's a devastating mutation. It affects a hundred different compartments. Hard to understand the mechanism. Anyway, they identify this relatively novel, I would say, SOX5. They mechanism it out, showing that it elevates the enhancer uh, activity of this high mobility group uh, box two factor, which is kind of... Uh, uh, kind of gerozyme, uh, I think is what they called it. It governs a lot of this. It kind of recapitulates a similar activity as um, the Yamanaka factors. And then uh, they show in the cell line that it, it rejuvenates those cells when you, when you um, induce SOX5. And then here's the key. Translationally, they go in this model of aged mice. They hit them with lenti uh, that's encoding SOX5 or this high mobility group B2, uh, our box two, and they show that it alleviated osteoarthritis and rejuvenated car cartilage in, in that model. So I was really impressed. I mean, nice that they show the mechanism, but I'm just happy with the result. This single factor and this crude delivery mechanism of Lenti in a whole organismal model, and you're showing an effect, and presumably if it's anything like the OSKM, uh, cocktail that has been shown in different compartments. It, it might work beyond just uh, alleviating joint pain. This could be something that's therapeutic in, in many different uh, organ organs and tissues. So I think it's really exciting. That's not even to mention that there's a whole other list of factors that came out of the screen. So I, I think uh, uh, kudos to the group, uh, really underscoring the the relevance and potential of this these CRISPR activation screens too. I mean, so much in this paper, I think, to get excited about. Yeah, this is really exciting. I, initially, when I saw this paper, um, I didn't see the some of the middle authors, and I was thinking to myself, oh, this would be a perfect 
you know, addition to the portfolio for Altos Labs. And then I looked at some of the middle authors and they include Juan Carlos Belmonte, who is at Altos Labs. So I'm sure there's some sort of affiliation there. But yeah, I think maybe a, I don't know if I want to say safer, but some kind of alternative to the OSKM-based approach. I don't know, like the other thing is SOX 5, SOX 2, how, you know, similar are those SYR by box proteins? Um, I know, for example, the GATA family of proteins is relatively similar, in, but they do have different uh, transcriptional responses and developmental roles. So maybe there there isn't that much difference between the SOX, the, the SOXs, right? Um, but I think the other thing that you're alluded to is the the therapeutic targets, right? You know, so one, you having not just SOX5, but also this HMGB2, which you can overexpress using a viral vector into the cartilage. But then, you know, perhaps one or two of these proteins could be used for other applications as well. I mean, for, for injury and for muscle repair, whatever, you can think of a million different applications. So yeah, perhaps another nice tool, you know, nice tool for the tool set of Altos Labs and friends, I suppose. Who knows? Yeah, I, I agree with what you said there. I mean, I was I I like the so the Sox five element to me is like, oh, that's cool. Haven't heard that one before. But I mean, the other side of the coin is as you're alluding to there is that there's not much there about Sox five, so you don't know uh, how overexpressing it could be deleterious and, and in what compartment. And like when you look at the Lamb Schaefer, like there's a pretty broad constellation. Uh, of defects and they're really quite serious speaking to the importance of of SOX5 and and by the way there's like 40 cases like it's very rare so you would assume that SOX5 and that's like a, a haplo um, insufficiency type phenotype you know it's not full loss of function I feel like loss of function is just irreconcilable with life and so anything like that where it's that critical uh, you worry about overexpressing it, but I think that's why they were careful, and maybe the reviewers asked for the HMGB2 alone as well with the Lenti. Um, and I have faith, you know, anytime people use Lenti in, in a story, I'm like, yeah, well, they're just sewing up the the this scientific element, you know, it's to understand, but maybe Lenti isn't practical in a clinical context, and and I have faith that uh, the different delivery mechanisms challenge there being how do you outside of the hematopoietic compartment, which is so beautiful because you can target a single cell that will recolonize. How do you hit the knee? You know what I mean? Just shoot something in there and express SOX5 to go up all over the place. I don't know. It's tough. There's challenges, but I think understanding the target, understanding that kind of epigenetic component of, of the HMGB2 is critical because now, you know, there's another many ways I think that you could maybe drug it. So that's my hope uh, that we could bring it back to the pharma paradigm and maybe tweak some of these downstream mediators of SOX5. And you don't need to bring me back to, you know, adolescence. I'd be happy just to be walking without pain into my retirement room. I would be happy to go back to my pimply faced adolescence. I have no qualms with that. But yeah, I, I agree with you. I think, you know, these one thing we're reflecting on is these transcription factors are extremely powerful. Right. I mean, that's the power of the OSKM based approach, just four transcription factors, four factors that can completely reprogram a terminally differentiated cell type into a pluripotent stem cell. Right. And uh, just like the GATA family of transcription factors is also very powerful developmentally. You got to be careful with how you actually use SOX therapeutically, because, of course, you don't want those downstream phenotypes like OC4, SOX2 overexpression, perhaps leading to teratomas, all this kind of thing. So, 
definitely a lot of work that has to happen here before clinical translation can become a reality. But you can bet that Altos Labs and friends are working in this area. Moving on to the last roundup study before our chat with uh, Roger Fu. This is another cell therapy in, in the, the neuroscience realm. This is focusing on epilepsy. And actually, this was some work that I believe was covered at the last ICCR annual meeting, which we had attended. And of course, we cover every year as part of the podcast. The title of this paper is a human paleo MGE type GABAergic interneuron cell therapy for chronic focal epilepsy. Now, you might think, and we were actually talking about this before the show, you might think a cell therapy for epilepsy may be somewhat extreme. Maybe there are alternative approaches to, to treat epilepsy. I don't know, deep brain stimulation and all these other things. I'm not super familiar with the approaches to actually treat epilepsy, but it can be a debilitating disease, even if it might not be directly um, fatal in, in, in its in its uh, prognosis, but it can debilitate someone's life pretty critically. You can't drive cars, you can't ride a bike, you got to be really careful when you're crossing the road, right? Because you don't want to have an epileptic seizure just out of the blue. So just to, to solve that problem, that's why you have this, you know, new approaches such as this potential interneuron cell therapy. And this is work, again, being pushed forward by Neurona Therapeutics. And like I said, they presented some of this work at the ISCR annual meeting. The last author here is uh, Corey Nicholas over at Neurona. First author is Marina Burstein. So they're focusing specifically on this mesial temporal load epilepsy, or MTLE, which is the most common focal epilepsy. And apparently over a third of patients have drug refractory seizures and are left with suboptimal therapeutic options like, you know, brain tissue deconstructive surgery. Wow, that's not something I want to go through. Let me let me tell you. So here they're showing the development and characterization of the cell therapy alternative for this drug-resistant MTLE, which is actually created from a human ES cell line. Um, and similar to the other preclinical study that, that I talked about a couple papers ago, they're able to show that the successful cryopreservation of these post-mitotic cells um, is, is achieved. You can freeze-thaw them, which is awesome for therapeutic applications. You're actually creating functional uh, GABAergic interneurons, which is the, you know, the target cell type for, for therapy in these epileptic-based approaches. Um, and then what they did is in a mouse model, they had a single-dose intrahippocampal delivery of these interneurons in this chronic MTLE model, and it resulted in seizure suppression. That's the hope, right? And that's their preclinical model for bringing us into patients, right? So um, most animals here were seizure-free and surviving ultimately longer, right? Which is what you exactly want to see. In terms of the histology, the show that the grafted interneurons were dispersing locally, they actually integrated functionally, persisted long-term, and, you know, just had the um, really hallmark features of reducing MTLE, okay, which is, which is great. And they're dose-dependent, these uh, disease modeling effects, which is something else. you also want to, of course, test in an early space clinical trial and a broad therapeutic range. Importantly, they didn't see any other notable adverse effects. And so like what I was talking about with the previous study, these results are supporting an ongoing phase one, two clinical trial for drug-resistant MTLE. So shout out to the folks at Neurona. This is, um, I actually don't think they're getting as much 
hype and publicity as as they should, maybe in comparison to other, some of the other big players in the cell therapy and stem cell derived cell therapy field. But this is a really important question and a really important topic in, in, in temporal lobe epilepsy. It's a debilitating disease. And I think this is a, a unique approach to potentially solve it. For sure, man. I, I agree 100% that these kind of studies don't get enough run. I mean, this is going to phase one, phase two. This is something that's ready to be tested in humans. That's that's the efficacy. And it's important, right? I mean, we were talking, as you said before the show, the fact that some of these people are willing to undergo brain surgery in order to mitigate with like significant risks. You know, it's like, yeah, I'll take some neurocognitive impairment if I could just be rid of these focal seizures. Like that's that's intense. So there's got to be treatments for these people. And I don't think that their their need is as recognized, perhaps, as some of the more headline grabbing stories. And just, I mean, probably people are getting tired of me saying this on the show, but this is just so, so exciting to be a part of this. I remember when I first started doing this show, it was like a joke on the field. Me and Kiki, we talk about a story and we have an interview or somebody and say, hey, when do you think this therapy is going to be ready for trial in humans? And it was always there, five to 10 years, five to 10 years, five to 10 years, like, ha, 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 five to 10 years means never. But like, here we are. Uh, it's been seven years since I started the show. So five to 10 years was, it turns out I, we were right all along. Here we are with the, you know, phase one, phase two trials across the board for some of these conditions that aren't the most conspicuous, but are real and affect like, you know, a substantial proportion of of the population. So I'm with you, Arun. I really, my hat's off to this study, this group and groups like it who are going after whatever it is, uh, anything. If you can get anything in phase one, you've, you've done a lot better uh, than I have. And I applaud and admire you. Yeah, this is, we're living in the future, like you're alluding to, Dale, on five to 10 years is here. <laughs> that is now. We always say five to 10 years from now. But just think about it. Every single paper that we covered in the roundup today has a very direct translational element. I mean, xenotransplantation, modifying kidneys for directly applying them within the next couple of years to human patients. We have the Agneta Kirkaby and Novodornidis story for Parkinson's. You know, that clinical trial is happening. SOX5, I mean, that's more of a basic science study, sure, but again, directly associated with folks at Altos Labs who are, you know, a, a biotech startup and hoping to address uh, aging and rejuvenation. And then here, this study in itself, which is another clinical trial supporting another clinical trial for epilepsy. So it, I, I agree with you. I'm, I think, you know, the old hats in the field, maybe this is uh, this, we are now living in the future, but for folks like me, um, you know, this is what I've always experienced. And I think that's the exciting part of being a trainee right now is we're no longer in the, the realm of pure basic science, which of course you still need to understand how these things actually work. But if you're a trainee who actually wants to work in the future and work on these translational approaches, clinical trials, and all these kind of things, you can make that a reality. So you don't have to necessarily, you know, stay in academia to dissect those mechanisms. You could jump ship and go into biotech and actually bring these things into patients. And I think we'll, in a few weeks, we'll be talking to, to Blue Rock about just that. Yeah. Five, five to 10 years, I guess, means now. Uh, in five to 10 seconds, we talk to Roger Fu, maybe a bit more than that. Before we get there, I got a quick message from Stem Cell Technologies. 
Did you know that you can model arrhythmias in cardiomyocytes derived from human pluripotent stem cells? You can. Watch Stem Cells On Demand webinar to learn how patient-derived and gene-edited HPSC lines can be used to model cardiac disease in vitro. Visit www.stemcell.com cardio-webinar. All right, everybody. Joining us today, Dr. Roger Fu, who is the Zayed bin Sultan Al-Nayan Professor of Medicine and Head of the Cardiovascular Research Institute at the National University of Singapore. The Fu Lab's main interest is in the molecular mechanisms that regulate cardiac biology and disease, particularly genomic, transcriptomic, and epigenomic patterns. In the lab, they use a variety of omics approaches to uncover key disease-causing target genes Dr. Fu, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you. Thank you, Jaden. Yeah, great privilege to be here. Well, the privilege is ours. Uh, I'm going to jump right into it with this question, you know, cardiovascular disease. The thing with it is it's the, the most visible element uh, of the disease, heart attack, stroke. It's typically the final straw in a pile that's been accumulating for decades, and I realize that the biology buried in that pile of straw is pretty deep, but can you give us a brief summary of how the genome, epigenome, transcriptome, and the omics uh, are progressively altered and in which cells and how that contributes to disease and how that is at the center of your lab focus for us? That's a great way to start this. Um, so I'd say that the very special thing about the cardiac space of disease today is the uh, biology uh, that the heart is not a regenerative organ. So for whatever teleological reason, the rest of the body maintains its capability or the cells at least maintains, or even at organ level has uh, stem cell niches where organs can regenerate uh, or pre-existing cells of the organs can regenerate and, and what we, I guess, speak to our patients about or heal, but the heart doesn't have that. Uh, and for that theological reason, probably uh, the heart, therefore, does not also develop cancer as a norm. Uh, and then the basis of that uh, is then today with, and then again, actually going slightly one step backwards, since the discovery of all the stuff that stem cell biology and regenerative therapies builds upon, I think, uh, in understanding cell states with the epigenome and the genome right in the center of all of that. Uh, so heart disease research has really come to the front, at least for us, with all of that knowledge uh, about how we could potentially be changing cell states, leveraging the genome and epigenome. Hmm. Yeah, so I, I think this is why this space is super exciting for us cardiovascular researchers. Yeah, as a fellow cardiovascular researcher, I would tend to agree with that. I mean, it's a great time to be working in the, the disease modeling field in cardiovascular disease modeling. I mean, we have all sorts of new tools like patient-specific iPSCs, CRISPR, that are allowing researchers like yourself and myself to make fundamental insights about the mechanisms for cardiovascular diseases, such as cardiomyopathies and so on. And we we're was looking at your lab website and doing my homework. Um, it looks like you've got a few different projects using IPS cardiomyocytes in vitro, including generating cells with these SCN5A mutations using CRISPR. So tell us more about the in vitro IPS cardiac disease modeling work going on in your lab right now. Mm. 
Yeah, so I would think so. Uh, I'd say that I started life maybe just drawing back slightly as a cell, maybe even physiologist, uh, and then getting progressively molecular. And when uh, at the, towards the end of postdoc training, uh, next gen sequencing came into the fore and uh, capabilities became more accessible. We started looking at genomes and then realized. Uh, I'm drawing back history too far, maybe Arun, um, that iPS cells and uh, the way that we can use, look for these so-called epigenetic switches can help us uh, understand these gene programs uh, even better. And obviously gene programs, as you know, are really underpins our understanding of how the heart starts to fail uh, and all the cells uh, that belong, uh, that are part of the heart. Uh, also respond in their genomic profile changes. So based on all of that, uh, I think we then kind of pivoted, I would say, some years ago uh, and realized this IPS platform, because I have to put my hand up quickly first and say that I'm not a stem cell biology trait. Mm. And this is really coming into the space when other people were already there with a lot of uh, deep um, techniques, technology for stem cells. So today in the lab, we routinely uh, isolate blood, uh, blood harvest blood from patients and uh, even the population in, uh, in the community, and then uh, carry out reprogramming so that we use iPS cells not just as a model for specific genes if those patients have that mutation, but also that, that you just described there but also uh, as a very general platform for studying cell biology, because you can take these iPS cells, obviously, and differentiate them to cells that you want to study. Yeah, I mean, not trained as a stem cell biologist, sure, uh, Dr. Frugal. That's what you do as a scientist, right? You evolve, the technology improves, and you get these tools which uh, give you leverage into the system. And I mean, yeah, you've been mostly focused on mechanistic deconstruction of cardiovascular disease pathology, but stem cells have been an amazing tool for you and, and will continue to be an amazing tool for you in, as like a black box, so to speak, right? To, to reconstruct uh, those disease pathologies. But yeah, I mean, your original impetus for unpacking the, the pathology of cardiovascular disease and all the omics that underlie it is is about treatment, right? I mean, that's, we all have our eyes on treatment, you know, basic understanding is one thing, but I think we all hope one day that our insights will be applied uh, in curing even one or treating even one single human. I would die happy, Roger. I don't know about you. Um, and with my focus on stem cells and regenerative medicine, of course, I'm thinking cell therapy, uh, but the prevailing treatments are pharmacologic or surgical, right? And and these treatments, to date at least, have limited efficacy, which is why there's such an unmet need that may be addressed with cell therapy. Um, most patients with the existing paradigm, within that paradigm, uh, suffer this long slide into heart failure, which you see firsthand and must be agonized. Um, one story you, you have from a few years back highlighted the potential for targeting this chondroitin sulfate to mitigate fibrosis after cardiac injury. And I love this idea because fibrosis is the key, right? This maladaptive process that you were kind of alluding to, teleological reasons unknown, but the heart's just different, right? Um, and there's a lot of approaches that have been applied successfully, unsuccessfully, sometimes fraudulently. 
uh, to try and address that. What's your prediction for the future of heart disease treatment? Can, can we stay on this path of cutting and drugging, you know, surgery, pharmacy? Uh, or do you think cells, either adult stem cell derived or pluripotent stem cell derived, do you think cells will play a role as someone who's, you know, evolved, so to speak? Where do you see the future line? Wow, that's a fantastic question to jump so far ahead, Aaron. So uh, definitely not simply the pharmacology that we have and surgical procedures. I mean, bypass is, uh, like the word implies, simply bypassing the disease or the problem. Uh, and if you really wanted replacement, then it's things like the left ventricular assist device or even uh, the, the holy grail uh, heart transplant. And these are obviously not without their um, risk and uh, problems that come with it. And definitely not something that we can do at scale for the uh, huge number of patients with heart failure out there. So pharmacology, like you say, really is at the moment uh, just treating the uh, physiology or the pathophysiology at its surface, uh, and which is also the reason why, like you say, people are still sliding down the slope, even though they're on maybe five or six different classes of medicine for heart failure. I think even worse than that, um, we see that every new drug that the pharma comes up with today, at least all of these pathophysiology type targeting drugs, they're needing clinical trials that number to the thousands in order to get that kind of p-value difference. And purely, I think, because you are laying one drug on top of another uh, to prove that this new drug works uh, better uh, added on to the part that the patients are already on. So I really think that what we learn from stem cell has to be the future because come one of these days when we take some of these to clinical trials, I don't think you need thousands of patients. This would be uh, like the way we're seeing in some of the diseases and perhaps cancer being the one that we always look to with green, green eye envy. Uh, cancer today is curing patients and they're even molecularly targeted. So even though you may be a cancer, I, I shouldn't be uh, pretending to know this a lot, but even though it's on the same organ because the molecular signature is different, you may end up using different medicines. Whereas in the heart today, every heart failure patients today get the same sets of medicine. So that's actually very dismal and very unsatisfying. Yeah, but it's not to say that there aren't certainly innovations, even in the pharmacology side of things. Like I point to Mavacampton, this drug that came out recently that was, you know, targeting uh, the myosin regulatory uh, mechanism and has been really pretty incredible for treating hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So certainly there is innovation and even in you know, the, the far future sci-fi realm. We we actually talked about xenotransplantation not too long ago on the show. And of course, there was the example of uh, the patient with heart failure in the US who received the, the immunocompatible pig heart, perhaps as a stopgap for, you know, a true human heart or in the, in the future to open the, the, the number of hearts available for transplant, right? So there are certainly innovations that are happening. And, you know, iPSCs are just another innovation. There are clinical trials for iPSCs being injected into people after heart failure, for example, Chuck Murray, other people around the world are working on this. But I mean, iPSCs are powerful. I mean, I do a lot of in vitro stuff with them. Um, but I think part of the reason people like iPS-derived cardiomyocytes is because 
you know, they're scalable, right? You can scale them up. You can differentiate them really easily from IPS cells, but that's something that you can't really do with primary cardiac tissues, as you know very well. I mean, you had this paper in Circulation Research describing the isolation of viable cardiac myocytes and non-myocytes from the adult mouse heart. And I mean, that this is a holy grail in, in cardiac biology, right? Being able to isolate primary human cardiac tissue and getting it to survive long-term for downstream applications. So what's holding us back in that regard when it comes to primary human cardiac tissues and being able to utilize them for those downstream purposes? Why can't we grow these things long-term? Well, great one, Arun. Uh, that really hits the nail on the head, right? I think really, oh, so, so by the way, that piece of work uh, is brought forward by Matt, who's uh, such a great catch. Uh, so Matt was trained at Cambridge with me and came when I came to Singapore or came back to Singapore, he, he joined me. Uh, and it was his idea, uh, isolating cardiomyocytes out of the mouse. We used to use Langendorf apparatus uh, at hanging hearts and very finicky uh, and if you uh, are slightly out of the ballpark in terms of the calcium or the temperature then the cardiomyocytes are. so that really speaks to why cardiomyocytes are so hard to isolate probably everything has to be so perfect uh, in terms of the buffers i think also probably uh, at least from the human side of the house the cells don't like to be outside of its milieu they like to be uh, hanging out with each other. Uh, there is connections between them, the connections. And then actually also the uh, extracellular matrix that it sits in, it probably is really crucial for them to be able to survive. Um, so Matt, to his great credit, has managed to isolate and uh, keep some human cells. We don't know whether it's definitely cardiomyocytes, but they are cells that came out of biopsies of the heart. Uh, alive for a few days in some experiments, but yeah, it's really tough with human cardiomyocytes. Um, although, having said that, um, there is Professor uh, um, oh dear, uh, at Imperial College uh, who is well known to have a protocol for human cardiomyocyte primary isolation, and she does contractility assays as well. Uh, if her name comes back, I'll mention it. Uh, and we did once look into that, uh, but just very hard to reproduce technically. Yeah, well, you said in the open, uh, not a lot of stem cells in the heart, right? No cancer there either. Good news with bad news. You know, the idea of in vitro growth of anything. I mean, if we've learned anything from the evolution of the organoids and all the, the stepwise incremental increase in complexity of these in vitro cultures to approximate real physiology is that 2D is insane, uh, and cells probably aren't into it. And so the only reason we've been able to get these intestinal organ, not only, but part of the reason we get these intestinal organoids are more robust ex vivo in vitro culture systems is probably because of some kind of resident stem cell or progenitor with proliferative capacity. So yeah, it's, it's the same problem we come and keep coming back to. But uh, I want to pivot here. Uh, so getting back to your this that your epigenome, I, I love the idea of this other dimension that you've added to our understanding of the heart. You know, when I was just getting into science, it was in the days of the Human Genome Project. It was coming to fruition, and billions had been poured into it, public and private. 
Um, and the thinking was, I think, amongst a lot of even highly trained scientists, geneticists even, uh, was the predictions of how this sequencing of individual human genomes would crack the code of disease risk, the so-called genotype-phenotype link, um, particularly with respect to you know the big killers like cardiovascular disease. And after a couple of decades, millions of genomes cracked. The reality is obviously much more complicated. But you had this neat study in, in circula circulation research that used the epigenome to literally add another dimension to the quantitative of these classic QTL, the quantitative trait loci analyses. Tell us about that and how it can be applied, what you learned about the, the linkage of the genotype or epigenotype and uh, phenotype. Oh, that's very cool. So I think this is uh, kind of something that a lot of the people are now really getting into because she was, like you say, uh, has picked out um, hundreds if not thousands of loci and some of them actually uh we think at least under the threshold of genome like gwas is a statistical uh tool after all you need to win in terms of the statistics to get those signals uh, uh poke out at you but under the sub uh threshold of genome significance there is that big hunch that there are still true and important signals around there if you let's say found more homogeneity in the cohorts that you collected, then maybe those signals would have been stronger. Uh, with a disease like heart failure, which is impossibly heterogeneous, there's so many different causes that leads to people having heart failure. So GWAS for heart failure has been very, very disappointing. Uh, I think at best we have a handful of um, hits from GWASs. So it was that um, thinking that I think is making people uh, want to get to the sub-thresholds of GWASs and uh, filter out and prioritize all the true positive signals. And in order to do that, you just leverage a lot more kind of uh, genetic approaches uh, to use and layer them on to prioritize the hits from those kind of sub-threshold areas. So what we did was to use the epigenetic uh, QTL, like you said, quantitative trait low sign. So when we um, map uh, epigenomic regulatory cis uh, regulatory elements uh, using histone marks across the genome, taking the heart as a sample, you end up uh, identifying and mapping out where these en enhanced elements are, for example. And if you believe that these announced elements are regulating the expression of the genes, maybe sometimes nearby, but if you use 3D confirmation, you discover they could be actually quite distal. In any case, these enhancers uh, should be important for the expression of the genes. And then if by extension, the expression of those genes are relevant to disease, uh, then the genetic variants that are sitting under those enhancers should be important to take note of. So it's on that basis that we started uh, realizing, I think at the same time, there are other groups that were doing that, um, uh, that actually mining these genetic variants underneath these enhancers would give us, uh, and then looking for QTLs, how they associate to both the enhancer um, histone marks, as well as the expression uh, abundance of the genes associated with them. And then overlaying these with the uh, uh, GWAS studies. And of course, it turns out that a lot of GWAS hits in threshold and sub-threshold are sitting in a regulatory element. So they are very much outside of the coding genome. 
So yeah, I think it's all converging and uh, it's good because then now we have the other um, maybe good problem where there are lots of genes that we have to fix and fix, uh, filter through and see which one has bigger effect sizes and maybe it's uh, different effect size in different types of pop patient population. Yeah, I mean, there's just so much that we're still learning about the regulatory portion of the genome and the the non-coding portion of the genome, as well as the the epigenome. I mean, it's a, it's a bit of a black box. I mean, but we're learning certainly a lot more. And I mean, there's elements of you know the genome that I'm just still not familiar with, and you know certain nucleic acids that are encoded uh, by by the genome, such as these circular RNAs, right, which is a focus of your your lab, and uh, you've actually had a, a paper in this area. I, I don't know much about circular RNAs at all, just full disclosure here. It's a relatively newly characterized class of RNAs that sequester microRNAs and re repress their endogenous activity. I and mean, we've, we've learned a lot about how microRNAs as repressors uh, have a very powerful role regulatory role in the genome as well. I mean, you had an interesting paper on this topic, like I said, where you created this circular microRNA sponge that targets certain cardiac pro-hypertrophic microRNAs, 132 and 212. Uh, you delivered this to a mouse model of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and it was really cool. You, you saw that this circular RNA sponge can actually rescue cardiac function when injected um, into the, the mouse hearts after, after injury, which actually demonstrates the potential of these circular RNAs as potential therapeutic tools. So tell us more about this work. I just, I just don't know a lot about this area. So I'm just really fascinated about this approach and this technology. Yeah, Arun, that's nice. So we also learned about that as the other biologists, RNA, RNA biologists were beginning to publish uh, evidence that there is a lot more, uh, you know, I think way back, there was one very early paper that um, before next-gen sequencing technology suggested that there was the presence of these circles. Uh, so when uh, it became clearer from other people's publications that uh, that circular RNA is a little bit more than just epiphenomenon or, or rare phenomenon, we, we uh, took out all of our uh, RNA sequencing data sets, you know, which we have tons of heart, uh, human hearts having been sequenced, and also mice, of course, and uh, started reanalyzing them for the circular RNA. We did found this whole huge spectrum of um, uh, of circled uh, back back spliced uh, junctions implying implying these circles exist. So uh, I think the space of this is still uh, wide open. People are showing that some of these circles are actually small open reading frames. They're uh, translated into peptides. Uh, and I think, actually not think that there are definitely companies out there that also have spun off uh, using circular RNA as a therapeutic modality. We ourselves have gone on that bandwagon as well. So NUS, is particularly keen on supporting uh, spin-off companies. So based on what you described that in that paper there, they gave us an opportunity to start up a company. So the first author on that project is now based at Cambridge, UK, with a startup um, with uh, some early seed money. Uh, we think that the circular RNAs can really be a platform uh, as part of this huge wave of RNA therapeutics. So the microRNA one three two actually turns out to be a target um, that our good friend Thomas Tom up in Hanover, Germany, 
is very uh, sharply targeting in his own spin-off company called Cardio that can be named because it's huge success in Germany. Cardio is a company. He's made antagonists of uh, microRNA-132. And it clearly, from his uh, work coming out uh, in non-human primate, even now, I think he's going to clinical trial uh, microRNA targeting for heart disease, metabolic heart disease, which includes hypertrophy, like you said. So we literally were looking for a target uh, to use uh, based on the circle that uh, Lavi, the postdoc, was making. So picked up Thomas Tum's target of 132 and targeted it. And he was very glad that we showed that 132 is indeed a good target for that disease process. So, so we are using circles and he's using a, a, a single strand antagabia. Lots to learn still for circular RNA. Uh, yeah, I think I'll stop talking about that for for then. If you have anything else, you should ask me. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I was on a review panel. One of the grants came through was focused on circular RNAs, and I, you know, I had to I had to do my job, so I went deep on it. And I gotta tell you, every every few years, something comes to my attention. And I go down a rabbit hole on it. It's amazingly, it's great, but also really humbling just to realize how how much biology has going on in the toolkit there and how little we know. And as you said, I, I read this grant, made my critique, and then I went back into my data set, had to look at everything all over again. Uh, so, I mean, that's the great and also humbling thing about and my experience with circular RNAs. And, and as you're describing, I could see that uh, it's a whole new world, right? Uh, that that's being opened up therapeutically, and also just in terms of our basic understanding. And you alluded to there, Singapore uh, National University there getting into the spinoffs, and no no surprise to me. I was just looking into the National University of Sing Singapore top twenty five endowments in the world. Uh, so no secret how they get that money, probably with the spinoffs and the royalties, but. Um, you also alluded to the all the 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 trainees you have here and in the UK where you did a lot of your training. I grew up in in Singapore, I, I presume. Uh, did your early training there, but then spent two decades uh, in the UK before coming home to the National University of Singapore, where you're head of the Cardiovascular Research Institute there. Um, and as I kind of alluded to there, with the top 25 endowments in the world innovation such a such a part of the fabric of the national university of singapore also singapore generally uh which although really small relatively in the world globally uh population wise at least is among the world leaders in banking telecom science also many other sectors um what is a unique highlight you would say of the culture or maybe it's the endowment uh, what do they what what do they got there? What's the special sauce in Singapore that differentiates science uh, that brought you back from the UK, where you were also highly successful? Oh, I thought your question was going to point my answer to the food, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which is both the great joy but also the Achilles heel of the country. I think uh, the great science. I I think it's just the um, vibrancy of the community now, which is kind of what maybe you are. Uh, hinting at, um, I think at this moment, it may be because we are still quite young as a country in science and biomedical research. We literally only started this whole enterprise. We say we, I wasn't part of it at the time 20 years ago. 
Uh, and then 10 years ago, when I uh, looked in, I realized, wow, it really is booming, boom times. And uh, they started it. It's very deliberate. Uh, they're in the country here. So they started it by building a strong foundation on basic research. So they was a, there was a lot of effort put into really key basic scientists, basic biology. And then in the uh, phases after that, or the phase after that, they started going into translational type research. So today, it's really a boom days for translational researchers like ourselves. So if you are thinking of disease areas, uh, uh, marrying bioengineering bio with uh, biology, well, it's great times today, uh, making diagnostic kits, making um, uh, uh, engineered uh, uh, devices for the for the uh, for use in the clinic, and then of course our space of biology and stem cells and RNA therapeutics. So it's just a vibrancy, I think. Lots of people very excited. Uh, even the leadership gets very pumped up when you talk to them about it. So uh, there is a convergence, confluence of uh, like-mindedness to drive this at the moment. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those places in the world that I, I dream of visiting one day. I mean, it's not just a scientific powerhouse, but just a beautiful place to to visit. And, you know, I, I actually, as a grad student at, at Stanford, I actually knew a number of people who were on these prestigious A-star fellowships. And, you know, these are incredible fellowships that allow people from Singapore to travel uh, around the world and do their scientific training in many different places. I mean, I'm also, I'm on social media as you are, and I hear about all the amazing science that's happening in Singapore from NUS and other institutions as well. I mean, you're active on social media, just like I think a lot of us are, except for Dalon. Dalon's actually not on Twitter or X, whatever you want to call it. Um, I mean, social media is kind of the fabric of academia these days, right? It's it's an easy way to get insights into what a scientist is enjoying and focusing on both in and outside of work and all the amazing food that's happening in Singapore and all the great food places that are being highlighted. Um, I mean, one thing that actually looked you know, stood out for me when I was doing my research into 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 your backstory was that you're deeply involved in student mentorship. And this is actually apparent through your social media account on, on Twitter. You always highlight the interns that you have in your lab. You highlight the honor students, grad students, the folks who are graduating. And from your lab website, it actually looks like you have like five PhD students, which is amazing. Um, so tell us about that approach as a PI, that as aspect of your career, the, the mentorship and the training of the next generation of scientists and kind of maybe who inspired you to get into science in the first place. Well, Arun, that's a heavy one. So I have to say it's just because it's always so super humbling that there are these smart guys around here. And, you know, somehow like the confluence that we're talking about, um, there are really smart people who want to do uh, good science around here. And then they you know, they don't just sell their souls to money, maybe. Mm -hmm. So because they come to NUS and look for graduate uh, opportunity, study opportunities, then it's a great um it's been a great experience just having them around and uh yeah what inspired me that's probably my own mentors then i have to say so uh but actually to be honest i did wish that i had a lot more in the in terms of the uh ecosystem and environment back in my time maybe uh because that really is uh, a lot better i feel uh what is available right now here in singapore um but yeah that's it 
it's just that the students are really fun to hang around. It helps me feel young, I guess. Uh, maybe that's a little bit conventional to say. Uh, and then also uh, they get the work done more quickly when you guys publish a good paper. Uh, there's so many of these that come up every week. I pass them on to the students and get them to summarize them. And that's a really good way as well to get knowledge uh, shared really quickly amongst the team of us. Um, yeah, and also just the uh, vibrancy of uh, creating this ecosystem and atmosphere so that people spur each other on, I think. I'm painting a really beautiful rose, uh, rosy picture. Uh, I'm sure you can think of all the negative side of every lab <laughs> that exists as well here. I would like to join your lab like right now. I'm I'm ready for a third postdoc, my friend. Um, but no, I mean, quite uh, genuinely, I will say that we all know the trainees are everything uh, for science. We talk about, you know, tech, you got to evolve. But the reality is that you really need a young mind uh, and young minds um, that are more plastic, right? And are willing to make the mistakes that maybe you don't have the time for. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I, as someone who had great mentors and try to pay it forward on, on the limited ability that I'm able to, uh, really appreciate and admire your commitment to that mentorship, because really it is, it's everything to the, to the young trainee. It really forms who they are as a scientist, not just technically and intellectually, but how generous they are. And even the little things like the morals and the ethics were the big things, um, but everything really. So, uh, it's, it's, uh. It's great to to have someone committed to mentorship who's in a position to uh, leverage that commitment and really, you know, cast a positive light out there. But I'm going to crawl out of your behind for a second, Roger Fu, and ask you a couple of peripheral questions because the interview is over. But for one final inquiry, which is, I mean, I have a, 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 a an expectation on this, but I might be surprised if you were not a research scientist. Uh, what do you think you'd be doing with your life and career? I think I'll still be a researcher, but maybe researching on something else and not basic biology or biomedicine. <laughs> so somehow, uh, so somehow I've I've become really drawn into uh, the whole space of history, and we're actually talking about history that is going way back into evolution, and. Uh, and actually, all of this I realize is coming through because recently we've been going a lot into evolutionary screens using genome-wide CRISPR, etc. And the whole meaning of the word evolution is finally clicked like a light bulb turned on in my head to think that uh, on Earth, the, the way that we have life today, you know, if we go back um, grandparent to grandparent to grandparent and really track it back. And this is where uh, listening to very big names like Richard Dawkins and so on in this biology, we started out as a fish, you know, we lived, uh, there were um, mammalian ancestors that lived on earth together with dinosaurs, the dinosaurs died out. And those creatures were still around. If those creatures didn't survive today, we wouldn't have mammals, you know, things like that. It's just so hard to grasp in this little mind. And then here we are, like as if we are the most powerful creatures on earth, which we are. And then going forward, what's going what's going to change? How is the species Homo sapiens going to evolve? Are we killing ourselves with the uh, inventions of AI? 
So I think it's just the whole, maybe you come to that age when you pass 50 and you start thinking about these things in a very expansive uh, space. But I'm thinking if I could drop what I'm doing today, what I would like to spend a lot of time doing is really researching on the evolutionary history of um, of life. <laughs> okay. So if you were not a cardiac biologist, you'd be an evolutionary biologist. We will accept <laughs> that answer, Dr. Fu, but uh, only because it is so deep. I mean, you're so right about that. The old maxim, if you don't learn history, I, I'm blowing it here, but if you don't Learn your history, you'll be doomed to repeat it, right? And I think the our evolutionary history, as you just alluded to there, there's some insight to be gleaned um, about how we might preserve our species for a few more years, although the future does not look that bright from where I'm sitting. But it's nice talking to you. I mean, you make it sound brilliant. I, I would like to just hang out in your lab for the end times, because at least I'd have a smile on my face and be doing good science. Um, but we'll have to wait for that. Uh, Dr. Fu, really so great having you on the show. You're probably about to make yourself another cup of coffee. I'm about to fall asleep in the chair here, but uh, you, you kept me up in the three hours and I really enjoyed it. And uh, I think I speak for Arun and our listeners when I say they they've, are going to enjoy this as well. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Lynn. Thank you very much, Arun. Thank you. All right, y'all. That brings us to the end of this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or via email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. Yes, we had a bevy of translational studies ready for phase one on the show today. Maybe not all of them, but very, very close for most. And we're about to talk about some of the watershed studies in Blue Rock. So if you guys aren't tuning in to our next few episodes, you know, you better ask somebody. Somebody.